Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message. <laughs> Mario, this is George Hook. I'm really looking forward to the David Quinn interview. <laughs> Myself and Myersy and Johnny Waters. We're all convening out in my men's shed to have a group listen and a scoop. Looking forward to hearing you boys taking down the bingo liberal woke brigade. <laughs> Get stuck in, Quinny. Mario, this is Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times. I was disappointed to hear that your podcast is uh, taking a worrying lurch to the right. And in a sense, not just the right, but the loony bin right in the form of David Quinn. I'm therefore reluctantly unsubscribing to your podcast and your output uh, forthwith. Thank you. This is Vladimir Putin, stoked about your David Quinn podcast today. Send a link and I'll retweet. Uh, Xi Jinping DM'd me today and said he gets a mention. Hilarious. Yas, Queen. Take care. Well, as you can hear, there is great excitement building about today's guest. He's a man whose opinions are not always popular. Um, but they're always incredibly well thought out and articulated, and he holds them with deep conviction. Um, You might also argue that voices like this are needed now more than ever, as the world currently leans very liberally, and contradictory opinions are always valuable no matter what the prevailing mood. My guest today is David Quinn, and if you're not familiar with David Quinn, I think you'll find this interview fascinating. If you are familiar with him, I think you might hear a side to David that perhaps you're not familiar with. People assume that if I was put in charge of the country, that they'd end up in this really, really ultra-conservative place that'd be right back to the 1950s, right? And that is simply not the case. I just noticed that I'm beginning to pick up support from people who would have voted yes in both of those referendums, but who are kind of broadly middle of the road, really, and just sick and tired of the whole woke stuff and the things you're not supposed to say. And they see people like me are against the whole cancel culture thing and against political correctness and saying things that you're sometimes not supposed to say. You know, you meet friends and members of your extended family and their marriages break down and, you know, you obviously sympathise with them. And you're not going to come down as a kind of great big judgmental authoritarian conservative on them, are you? Because you've got to live in the real world and you've got to make the adjustments that living in the real world require. Oh, these lads were proper right-wingers. You're soft. You're gone soft. I see you on television. You're an absolute disgrace. I see you there taking questions off Miriam O'Callaghan or listening to Fintan O'Toole. And you're soft on him, you should be putting your studs through him. <laughs> and poor David gets a real roasting from Roy Keane. Uh, you don't want to miss that. Um, it's all coming up in just a few minutes' time on the Mario Rosenstock podcast, which I'm delighted to say is supported by Curry's PC World. And speaking of Curry's PC World, someone has just received a delivery. Yeah. Mr. Johnny Sexton? Yeah. A delivery from Corey's PC World there. Yeah, I, I didn't your... order anything from Corey. No, I'm just the delivery man, Mr. Sorry, Sexton. Hang on. Hello? Johnny, it's Raj. Did you get the TV? What TV, Raj? I got your Sony TV up in Corey's to celebrate the Lions Tour. I'm not going on the Lions Tour, Raj. Exactly. That's why you'll need a really great TV to watch the Lions Tour on, Johnny. Raj, are you taking the pit? No, I'm just saying, the better the TV, the better you'll be able to watch every detail of the Lions Tour like Jesus. Yeah, how do you mean? This is a huge TV, Johnny. You'll yeah. be able to see every pass, every kick, 
Ultra yeah. HD, you'll be able to see every minute detail that you're missing out on. Ah, listen, summer, John. get lost, will you? I knew you were trying to wind me up, Rog. There's no need to be grumpy, Johnny. Jesus I'm not grumpy. Right. You're always calling me grumpy. No. Just get lost, Rog. Get lost. I don't Johnny. want your charity TVs. Go away. John. Okay, I take it back then. Hey, where are you going with that thing? I take it back to Corey's. It's not 55 inch, is it? No, 65 inch Sony Bravia. I yeah, okay. Leave it there. Okay. Say no nothing, okay? Sign here. Cool. Summer sorted. The Mario Rosenstock Podcast, proudly supported by Curry's PC World. Good luck with the new TV, Johnny. Yep, it's going to be a summer of sport, all right. And we might not actually get to see all the sport in the flesh, so a good TV might be a good investment. Anyway, thanks again to Curry's for the tip-off. And yes, summer is coming. Um, it's been a bit cold recently, but summer is definitely coming. And we might even get to fly somewhere this summer. And when I think of flying... I think of only one name. Ryanair have fantastic new offers available this summer. Check out our new Ryanair hijack special. Dublin to Athens. Via Belarus. For an incredible $29.99. Or Cork to Santa Ponza. Via Belarus. $19.99. Or simply fly direct to Belarus. $9.99. One way. Enjoy complimentary Russian vodka baggies. Or simply sit back and enjoy the view of your hostile fighter jet escort. Ryanair CEO Michael O'Leary. Look, it's not as if we even ever land remotely close to the destination we're going to anyway. So why not Belarus? People love strong, no-nonsense, authoritarian leaders. But enough about me. Look, it might not be ideal, but at least you're feckin' flying. Now shut up! It's been torture staying at home. So why not get tortured abroad instead with a Ryanair hijack special? Vax and go and shut up. Whatever you do, don't send that around, that ad around on WhatsApp if you see it going around. Don't send it around. We have brand new and exclusive comedy for you every week on the Mario Rosenstock podcast, which is part of the Acast Creator Network. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, do jump back through the channel and have a listen back to the sketches and hopefully the interviews too. With people like Diran Garrahy, very funny, great impressions. Eamon Dunphy, very revealing. Connor Moore, uh, Connor Moore, jeepers, he was an amazing impressionist. Um, Ronan O'Gara, very revealing of Rog. Um, it wasn't so much about sport, it was more about the inners of Rog's mind and how it works. And while you're there, please hit subscribe or follow for free and throw us a rating and a review. Do it, please. It really helps me and us to get out there with this new and growing podcast. I also read all your emails, which you can send to me personally. It gets right in front of me. Just contact me at marioRosenstock at gmail.com or hit me up at Twitter um, at GiftGrubMario or Mario Rosenstock on Facebook. Right, it's time for the David Quinn interview. My chat with David, a man who holds sometimes unpopular views, and that's why I'm having him on the show, quite frankly. Not because I agree with everything he says, far from it. But I think now more than ever, we need to listen to what people who we disagree with might have to say. Opponents don't have to be enemies. Enjoy this. David, listen, thanks a million for joining me on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I was actually a little bit um, reluctant to get you on, actually, because I'm beginning to think you might be fatal for my career in general, because <laughs> the, the last time I had you on my radio show, you were the last interview I ever did before I was cancelled the next day. Uh, so my radio show was cancelled the next day. So, David, I hope you are not bad for my health. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> well, I mean, I was a bit shocked, I've got to say, like... I mean, I think I seem to remember you said the item went well, and next minute he's off air. So what did I do? It was horrifying. <laughs> I've had nightmares ever since. 
waking up with night terrors. Did yeah. I did I ruin Rosenstock? Well, it's funny, actually, because even on social media, there was a bit of a, a rumor going around that you were the reason that I was cancelled. And I thought mm. I was laughing, uh, laughing my head off about it because, of course, uh, um, you had nothing to do with it. But anyway, um, David, I wanted it's to start. It's a good story, though. It's a good story. It's a good, it's a good story and it improves your reputation no end. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I wanted to start by just a very basic and simple question to you. I mean, I mean, one way of looking at this is that we live in an increasingly polarized world in which people are being banded into two separate groups. Um, I mean, for example, the the broadcaster James O'Brien in LBC over in London describes it as the footballification of politics and society, whether we're either left or right or we're up or down or black or white or whatever. And I suppose it's fair to say that, David, you would fall into what we would call um, the category which we say is conservative. And uh, Mm. I suppose the other group would be called liberal. Now, it's a shame that we have to call those Mm. two groups those names but for the purposes of the the the, the progressing the argument the way we want to go we would call you a conservative but david what i want Mm. to ask you is what i want to ask you is what is a conservative in ireland at the moment you are a conservative what is that what does that mean to be a conservative okay well let me actually just go back a step because i think even within the conservative uh, liberal divide there's kind of two subdivisions and one is kind of authoritarian conservative and one is authoritarian liberal. So what you get among liberals, for example, um, you get the kind of liberal who wants to cancel J.K. Rowling and you get the kind of liberal who doesn't want to cancel her. All right. And we saw the same thing with Richard Dawkins when he was canceled by the His Society last year. I think we discussed that actually on Today FM. So you get this kind of divide among liberals between kind of liberal liberals and authoritarian liberals, if I can put it that way. And then on the conservative side, I think there's something kind of similar. I mean, the authoritarian, I mean, look, I mean, conservatism in Ireland is now kind of a tiny tendency, really. At least politically speaking, there's no party, the possible exception of Ainter, who would still hate to be called conservative, who want to represent it. Um, so you don't tend to hear much on that side of the house at all. And conservatives are so weak, they're not in the position to cancel anyone. Whereas liberals are in a position to cancel people. And in a way, what's going to be necessary to kind of save freedom of speech in Ireland are the liberal liberals fighting the authoritarian liberals, if you catch my drift. Because Mm. I don't have the power to do it. All right. Uh, Because, again, conservatives are in such bad odour at the moment in Ireland. But it's kind of understandable because actually going back far enough, we did have a highly authoritarian version of conservatism. It was kind of like, you know, politically correct conservatism, but it was only, you know, we had... The usual thing we do in Ireland seems to be you get this really iron consensus and it, it, it hardens into groupthink and you're not allowed to step outside it. And we had that for a long time in the Catholic version. Uh, so there was kind of, uh, there was kind of um, if you like, I suppose, Catholic correctness as distinct from political correctness. And that ruled the roost for all too long. We seem to put the Catholic Church on this massive pedestal from particularly independence in 1922, where we decide we want to be a super Catholic country. We want to prove to those Brits they didn't conquer us politically or religiously or anything. So we're just going to take on this really exaggerated version of Catholicism. We're going to put bishops up on the pedestal and put them in semi-charge of the country and uh, great intolerance of other points of view. So eventually this gets overthrown. And anybody now who's conservative is associated with the Yanshan regime, if you like. So we're the tide is way out for us. So we're in a position to cancel no one even if we wanted to. And now the liberal tide is well in, but coming in with this liberal tide is a kind of disturbing echo 
of the kind of authoritarianism of the kind of conservative Catholic era, because they're now saying, well, we're kind of powerful. We're in the driver's seat. So now we can start canceling people who we don't like. And the only people, as I say, capable of resisting that are probably people like yourself, Mario, um, and other liberal liberals, if I can put it that way, who um, liberal point of view and will tick the boxes on the, on the big social issues and will vote yes in the various referendums, um, but still think in something called freedom of speech and say Richard Dawkins should be heard, J.K. Rowling should get her books published, J.K. Rowling is entitled to a different opinion about trans rights and all this sort of stuff, and you go through the whole list. Um, so I think that's kind of roughly where we are at the moment in terms of the left-right split and actually and the liberal conservative and the more relevant one to me is the one within liberalism itself. That's the more yeah. relevant split. Um, but anyway, so I'm, I suppose, one of the few enough kind of public conservatives still left out there. And I think, again, I was saying to you previously, um, I think a lot of us actually approach politics in a kind of... Um, instinctive way um and there's a kind of instinct that's kind of well hang on if you're going to make this change um prove the case for it and that if you like is the conservative instinct and the liberal instinct is hey change sounds great uh, you don't have to prove your case for it just make the change all right and i think they're just two basic instincts and they don't you know there's not at root much more actually then a starting instinct in them. Now you can build an ideology on both of those instincts, but I think actually you started off with a basic instinct uh, to borrow the line from the movie. Um, so that could be a right tangent off. Um, but so I think for somebody like me, as kind of somebody who's instinctively conservative, somebody wants to make a major change to society. And we've been doing this thing, and we've been uh, a certain way of doing things for a very, very long time. That my instinct is to ask, why were we doing it this way for so long? Okay, it wasn't mm. actually a good underlying evolutionary reason to do it this way. Um, uh, whereas, again, you know, a liberal will say, don't care about the reasons, they're just reactionary, make the change. And then afterwards, well, maybe you'll discover over time there was a good reason to what was there before. It's kind of like brakes and accelerators in the car. You actually need both. You can't have all brakes and you can't have all accelerators. At the moment, on certain issues, I think we're all accelerators and the brakes have been thrown away. Yes. Okay. So good. So, so in other words, one of the tenets then of conservatism would be that there is nothing wrong with core traditional values and that uh, traditional values have been um, seen as being successful, let's say, for many hundreds of years. And some of those values are worth holding on to and not just accelerating too fast and changing. Is that fair to say, David? Yeah, I mean, like I was reading a few years ago a book by a guy called Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, who's yeah. an evolutionary biologist. Yeah, he wrote this book called The Righteous Mind that got lots of publicity at the time. And he says, um, in everybody, there's kind of, what does he call it? Six foundations for moral intuitions. And we've all got these to varying degrees. So one is um, care, care for people. One is fairness and how we treat people. One is loyalty. Another one is authority. What's our attitude to authority? Another one is sanctity, sacred. I think that's self-explanatory. And another one is liberty. And he says um, liberals place huge importance on care for others, good, and fairness. But they don't attach the same um, uh, loyalty, if I can put it that way, to things like loyalty to country. And conservatives will tend to do that. They don't care too much about authority. It's obviously conservatives care about authority. They don't care too much about sacred sanctity. Um, they do care about liberty. 
So the point hate makes is actually conservatives do care about care, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, liberty, but the kind of weight they attach to each of them is different. Whereas liberals come along and they attach huge weight to care, fairness, and liberty, but hardly any weight to loyalty, authority, and sanctity. All right? And that tends to colour your politics as well. Does that make any Got sense? It. No, it does make complete sense. Actually, I know, I know Jonathan Haidt. I think he wrote another one called The Coddling of the Modern Mind, um, yeah. which was about how uh, basically uh, younger people in the 90s and the 2000s were being mollycoddled too much as children. And mm. they were being taught to stay in safe spaces the whole time and not to, they weren't allowed out in, in parks and allowed run wild anymore because there was a, a there was a, 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 a fascination um, among about, about children being stolen and being you pred- yeah, predated on by, exactly, and so pre- ha- parenting became too extreme. But anyway, um, we're going to come back to some of these issues in a minute, David. But uh, with all my guests on the show, uh, on the show, on the podcast, I like to ask them: Is there something at the moment they want to get off their chest? Is there something that's let's say bugging them at the moment? Is there some overriding thing that they're thinking about at the moment that they want to to get off their chest? So, what is it with you, David? Well, um, uh, I have developed a great dislike for the phrase an abundance of caution. All right. This is what we hear. Yeah, this is what we hear all the time. You know, uh, so, for example, when they were deciding who gets the AstraZeneca, who gets Pfizer, and what age groups and all this sort of stuff, and they were deciding, is it the over 50s? Is it, is it the over 60s? Is it, is it the over 70s? And uh, they seem to keep changing their mind. And you heard these various doctors and various programs saying, well, we're operating out of an abundance of caution. So we're not going to give, I think it was AstraZeneca at one point to the under 60s, out of an abundance of caution, just in case somebody is in the one and two million category where they get a blood clot. All yeah. Right? Um, so therefore, the under uh, 60s are not going to get the AstraZeneca one. But this, to me, this abundance of caution has become so dominant as the governing philosophy of the country now that I think we should actually change our national anthem and call it an abundance of caution. So maybe, Mario, you can go away. Our own and abundance. <laughs> That's right. I call it abundance of caution. Uh, so, um, and I think we see it in a way we're easing out of lockdown. We're doing it incredibly, incredibly slowly. Okay, well, let me stop you there for a moment because does your conservatism, does your conservative, um, if you like, faith uh, inform you that our, the government response to the pandemic has been, in essence, very flawed? Well, you see, there's a weird kind of um, role reversal going on here with this, which I've noticed, and I can't quite explain it because the people who are usually for kind of personal freedom and personal choice are instead saying the state needs to really clamp down on people's lives, you know, for an indefinite period of time until we get this whole thing fully under control and maybe even achieve zero COVID. So suddenly the value of liberty, which I was talking about earlier, you know, Jonathan Haidt's six intuitions or whatever it is, seems to have disappeared in favour of safety, which actually maybe is the care one that he was talking about. So care is one of them. So maybe actually what we're seeing here is um, that when kind of, if you like, the liberal mind uh, has a choice between liberty and care, they go more towards care. But conservatives are generally not over-associated with liberty. We're kind of more associated with things like authority, if you like, and loyalty. Um, Suddenly we're the kind of more liberty people. So I, I can't quite figure out exactly what's going on there, to be honest, but it's what's happening in practice. And you see it in America. So you see Republican-governed states like Florida 
um, so Ron DeSantis, the governor, he lifted most restrictions months ago. And then in Democrat-controlled ones like California, really, really, really cautious. You have this abundance of caution thing. So it's now kind of in this particular scenario turning out that people who are quote-unquote conservative are the ones who are more for liberty and then people who are more kind of left liberal are more for kind of care safety. And so therefore you get this kind of abundance of caution philosophy. But it so happens that Ireland now is on most issues a very kind of liberal slash left country, not as much as Paul Murphy would want, but I think it can be called kind of liberal left, certainly social democratic. And we've heavily moved towards the care safety kind of part of this set of kind of choices and palettes and colours that Jonathan Haidt talks about. Um, and I just think that whatever response we have needs to be proportionate. It needs to weigh up a whole bunch of different goods. And I think we're overdoing the caution at the mm. moment. And I compare us, by the way, to a country like Denmark, which is traditionally a social democratic country, and mm. they're coming out way faster than we are. Same kind of population. Um, but they basically rolled back nearly everything on Friday. Uh, you've been able to have outdoor dining in Denmark for the last month, and they've had indoor dining for the last two weeks. Their mm. cases, by the way, are higher than here. The daily cases are higher, but they don't care that much because the vulnerable are now vaccinated. And kind of the deal with people was, we got to protect the vulnerable. Uh, so therefore, we got to curb our freedoms. Well, now the vulnerable have been protected by and large by the vaccine. So the, so the Danish government is saying, well, okay, they're protected. So take your freedoms back. So that's what's happening. And Denmark is not considered a headbanger country. And that's what they're doing. And we're just really, 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 really slowly coming out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think overdoing it. Okay, overdoing it. Okay. And because you're a member of the, you know, media and you have a number of media engagements every day and every week and you write in a in, in newspapers and stuff, how do you think the media response has been to how do you think the media posture has been throughout this pandemic? I think abundance of caution. Um uh I mean, again, you see in other countries there's a bit more debate going on about um uh about the speed of easing out of lockdown and the speed you go into lockdown. But here, um, and actually after, you see, Britain had a first, had a, such a bad experience, particularly during the first wave of this thing, but actually had a bad second wave as well. They've taken the abundance of caution approach as well. So even though they're way ahead of us in terms of vaccinations, they've also been moving slowly out of lockdown because I think they've been so burnt. And because we look at Britain and we learn from Britain. Um, but I think mainly the debate here has been between those who are super cautious and those who are super, super cautious and who mm. want zero COVID and who basically want to seal the borders more or less indefinitely of practically everybody going into hotels to mandatorily quarantine or ride two weeks at their own expense, kind of do in New Zealand, and then remain that way indefinitely. And so there hasn't been much of a voice for those who are saying, well, look, and we have a more middle of the road kind of approach here, which takes a few risks, but it takes a few risks for the sake of getting back to normal life. And that voice has been very, very muted. And so people who say things like 80,000 might die or 120,000 might die. I mean, these are the sort of figures that have been, you know, bandied about. Yes. They get huge airplay, huge airplay. And they're never hauled on to programs and say, well, hang on a minute. You said it could be 80 to 120,000 deaths. That's equivalent to millions in America. This thing America is about 66 times our population. So don't have a calculator in front of me. But the idea that America was going to suffer millions of deaths was always ridiculous. And that's equivalent to 120,000 dead here. So the people who are scaremongering like that, they probably were doing it in all sincerity, have never been held to account. 
Um, and therefore we kind of said, well, hang on, you were really, really wrong here, weren't you? And realistically, that was never going to happen. Not even if we hadn't gone into lockdown, was it going to happen? So those sort of questions don't tend to be asked. Yeah. So do you feel then that the media and, for example, the state media in Ireland has, in a sense, towed the line with this abundance of caution and safety um, and uh, carer, if you like, uh, a tone to the extent that it, it has restricted complete free speech in relation to reflecting other sides of the argument? Yeah, do you see, I mean, it's not like there's been a formal um, uh, curb on free speech that, you know, you literally can't say these things legally speaking, uh, but there's been an informal curb um, where certain things just don't really get aired. All right. So again, the debate is between the super cautious and the super, super cautious. And that's kind of it. And everybody else is considered a bit of a lunatic or, is, or somehow irresponsible or whatever the case may be. And Irish people, you know, they haven't been told that for months and months and months, well, certainly two or three months, people have been allowed to go into restaurants in Spain. Sorry, depends on the part of Spain. Madrid, certainly. Now, there was a curfew at 11 o'clock. Uh, and the Spaniards, of course, like to basically start their night at 11 o'clock. So there were curves. But you can still go to, into a restaurant in limited numbers in the early part of the evening for a long time now. And there was a um, there was a regional election in Madrid a couple of weeks ago. And the ruling centre-right mayor, um, Isabella Yuzo or something, I think her name is, she won a huge victory. She doubled her vote, doubled her number of seats. And her campaign slogan was freedom because she kept Madrid as open as she possibly could. And by the way, there was no great big spike in cases. So Barcelona was being was taking a more safety-first approach, and Madrid wasn't. They were taking a more freedom-first approach, but there wasn't much difference in the spike in cases, which is kind of interesting. Um, and I can't explain that really, by the way, because intuitively you'd expect the place with less restrictions would have a much worse number of cases. But that mm. doesn't seem to have panned out that way. And you see the same thing in America. So in Florida... And the governor said, I think roughly last September, no matter what happens at Christmas, we are not locking down. Does not do it. Um, and Christmas comes along and there's a spike in cases. And he says, not locking down. And then the spike begins to go down anyway. California, meanwhile, locked down. It gets a spike in cases at Christmas anyway. So you have a lockdown and the case numbers come down. But they're coming down in both places. They're coming down in Florida without lockdown. And they're coming down in California with lockdown. So it's kind of a bit weird. It's as if this thing has a kind of life of its own. It goes up and down anyway. And so long as you don't absolutely get rid of all breaks on it, it has a natural up and down kind of pattern to it. And America has been very interesting. It's, it's allowed us to compare regions. And Madrid yeah. and, Bar- and Barcelona is also a way to compare regions. Okay. Uh, so I hear exactly what you're saying, uh, David. Now, also, I've been listening to you very closely and I'm cognizant of people listening to the podcast and I'm cognizant of a certain type of people who are going, oh, it's your man. It's David Quinn, the conservative. Now, everything that I've listened to so far is pretty much is, is pretty much straightforward, common sense. I can see where you're coming from. I can see what angle you're coming from. Yet you did allude to this, this phenomenon that this kind of even saying the obvious, even quoting normal data, which would be provided by the government or seeing the world around you um, and seeing it through the conservative prism is to almost be equated with a lunatic. Let's say somebody comes along and they go, I'm a conservative. I believe that there should necessarily should be more maybe concentration on the freedoms aspect of it instead of clamping down so much. They're immediately said, oh, your man probably believes in coronavirus coming from 5G 
feckin' masts or whatever. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about this, that conservatism now is almost being uh, pigeonholed in, into these kind of wackos, lunatics. Do you get what I'm getting at? Yeah, do you see when, um, when any point of view becomes extremely dominant, it begins to look like common sense. All right, because it's in the air you breathe, everything you read, the dramas you watch, the books you read, everything reflects this kind of dominant point of view. Um, and because it comes to seem simply like common sense, then, well, you know, why don't you go along with this? Because it's just common sense. It's just facts. This is just objectivity and you're against objectivity. So the reason you're against objectivity and common sense must be because you're mad or bad or stupid can't be because you've got a good reason, because you can't have a good reason to be against reason. That's a contradiction. And so this happens in all ages where a particular point of view becomes so dominant, uh, you don't even see it anymore to a certain extent, because you just absorb the whole thing by osmosis. And then this guy or this woman comes along and they don't go along with it. So the only explanation can be mad, bad or stupid. Um, and of course, the worst of those is to be bad. So you know you're wrong but you have some nefarious reason for advancing another point of view anyway. But you see, again, I think it comes down to kind of the split uh, within liberalism between the authoritarian liberals and the liberal liberals. So the authoritarian ones are so kind of totally ingrained in their point of view that I think anybody who goes against this, you know, could well, you know, be a very bad person. All right. And the only excuse is if they're mad or stupid. But if you're clearly neither of those things, then you must be a very, very bad person and all kinds of nefarious things, and you're full of prejudice and bigotry and all that kind of thing. So that, so like once you decide that a person is this terrible human being, well, then you kind of give yourself permission to hate them. So you end, so you end up in this kind of paradoxical situation where the, where the um, group who think they're tolerant, once they decide you're intolerant, they then give themselves permission to just pour out all the venom in the world on you. And it's kind of amazing. And then they have this hashtag, be kind. So I saw like Larissa Nolan, the columnist, criticized Blind Boy for opining on mental health. Because she said, well, what does he know about that? And there's a huge big pile on, on her over this. I mean, the venom, you know, directed at her. She was trending on, trending on Twitter um, after her column uh, from the people who often have hashtag be kind was incredible. I mean, it was just it was it was a virtual online lynch mob was out for her. And so you see this. So they can't say, okay, Larissa's entitled to her point of view. She thinks your man, you know, hasn't got the qualifications that people seem to think he has to be opining on mental health. And they've made him a great authority on mental health. She questions that. And suddenly she's just absolutely turned on. So we actually see, I mean, I was saying earlier, and this is going to slightly contradict, you know, what I was saying, um, that conservatives tend to put greater credence on things like loyalty and also authority. But actually... All groups suffer from kind of um, uh, in-group tribalism, if you like. Yes. And if you attack somebody in our tribe, we're going to savage you. All right. That's, we're that's loyal it. That's, to that's our figureheads. But that's the footballification that I referred to previously, yeah. David. So it's the idea that if you're watching Liverpool versus Manchester United, and if a Manchester United player clearly dives in the box, and you're a Manchester United fan, you're going to say it's a penalty. And everybody else will see, he dived. He clearly dived. But you're going to go, he didn't dive. You will refuse to see the fact that was in front of you because you will place tribalism in front of the objective reason 
that was that was that was ahead yeah. of you. And and I think a good example of that was when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated by Donald Trump to, to the Supreme Court, and then a woman comes out and makes an accusation of sexual assault against him, and people just divided up completely along tribal lines. And so I believe her, and uh, no, I believe him, and it was completely political. Um, uh, and we all suffered massive confirmation bias there. And then when it comes to somebody like Andrew Cuomo, you know, the governor of New York, because he appeared to do a good job during COVID while Trump's having daily meltdowns and his stupid press conferences. All right, Andrew Cuomo was articulate and all the rest of it. And Cuomo has had accusations made against him. But we don't hear much about them. And I think, again, it's because of this kind of tribal thing again. So as you say, it makes us perfectly inclined to believe uh, no, our guy, you know, that wasn't a red card. It was a red card for their guy, though. And we don't even consider the evidence. It is it is a bit amazing and it's worrying, but it's particularly worrying when any group gets too dominant because they're the ones who can flash the red cards all day long at the side they don't like. And their mm. side never gets a red card because they now also control the referee. You spoke about a pylon against um, Larissa Nolan there, uh, and uh, mm. I'm aware of what you're talking about. I would say in his defense that Blind Boy um, came out and said that um, he has never put himself forward as an expert mm. on mental health. Um, and in, in, in fairness to him, do you know what I mean? That it's that it's other people maybe putting him in that position because he is an advocate for mental health, but he's not necessarily saying. He's, oh, yeah, no, he's, I get that. I get that. And... So I think he's coming from good faith there as well. But what I really yeah. wanted to ask you was, what, were, are you in a sense, have you been, have you felt as well? Have you had the Larissa Nolan treatment? Have you had pylons? Do you have that often? Do do you are you on the receiving end and the butt end of of of, of visceral hate from people? Uh, yeah, quite a lot. I haven't trended for a while on Twitter. I don't know whether to be worried about that or not. Um, but it, yeah, we but get to trending, David. <laughs> yeah, like there was a guy last week and. Uh, he calls himself on Twitter the Grim Reaper. And he says, um, I'm really looking forward to meeting you soon, David. All right. So this is, in a way, at a milder end. Uh, but um, this is when Owen Harris was getting booted out of everything, including his uh, various anonymous Twitter accounts. So here's an anonymous Twitter account wishing me dead. Um, so I reported that to Twitter as an experiment. Does this violate the rules? Um, and Twitter came back with a no time at all to say, no, this does not violate the rules. So it's now official. From, from behind an anonymous Twitter account, you can wish David Quinn dead and it doesn't violate the rules, mm. uh, which is kind of weird. Um, and are you, saying that's, are, you, are you saying that's quite clearly hypocritical on their, on their part? I, I can't see how it's not. All right. Because Owen Harris, I don't think was wishing anybody dead. I mean, there was some, you know, fairly nasty tweets, but they weren't at that end of the scale. Mm. Um, so this was at a pretty extreme end and it doesn't violate the rules. So there's somebody, I remember there's a human being at the end of the day deciding this is a violation, that's not a violation. And they have to bias this as well. And they suffer from the tribalism as well, which is why I think, um, you know, systems need to have devil's advocates built into them. Because mm. we saw again during the property boom, the problem was there was nobody saying this could go seriously wrong because they just weren't being listened to and they were excluded as voices from the whole thing. And then, of course, it went spectacularly wrong. And the reason they were being excluded is because so many people have become so invested in the property boom that people were scared. If you give too much credence to those people who are saying it's going to come down, then my investment in my house might not pay off to the extent I thought and have a yeah. huge mortgage in it. So it'll, that's be a, kind of it'll, it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Um, so it all gets kind of self-reinforcing. Yeah, but Dave, 
David, the the I'm in I'm in entertainment, right? So I'm in com- I'm a comedian and I'm an actor and I'm a broadcaster. And part of what drives us is the uh, desire, if you like, whether it's that's a juvenile desire or an early age desire to be popular. Um, and because if we're not popular at all and and nobody's listening to our work, or, or then then it's then we feel bad. Um, but in your case, you are as you've already alluded to, conservatism in Ireland is at a low ebb um, and that there are pylons and, and hate speech everywhere and all this sort of stuff. And not even Twitter backs you, for God's sake, David. They'll get behind you even if they, Twitter want to kill you, basically. Um, so how does it feel to have these, you know, in numbers terms, very unpopular opinions? Do you ever get worn down by that? Do you ever feel depressed by that? Um, I rarely feel... Um uh depressed or set back or upset by that kind of stuff to be honest i mean i probably do have a pretty thick hide i think i've a kind of fairly level temperament anyway i'm not particularly an emotional person so if i see somebody being really really nasty on twitter um it doesn't tend to affect me emotionally much at all i mean that's kind of uh, i mean it's a bit like you know somebody gets mugged and um somebody else gets mugged in the exact same way and it's the same level of physical attack but it's it's the same attack but somebody gets much more psychologically upset by it than the other person and maybe you ought to get psychologically upset by it maybe it's kind of a bit weird if you don't get psychologically upset by it so maybe it's a bit strange that i don't get more psychologically upset than i do by all the abuse i receive but i see it by and large and within limits uh as an occupational hazard when you have views that are unpopular in the present climate. But I also get people contacting me to say, well done, I agree with you. I get people stopping me on the street sometimes to say, well done, I wouldn't dare say that, but somebody has got to say it. So I get plenty of support as well, but I tend to get it more silently. Um, So if you're on Twitter, um, you see mainly the attacks. And when I see plenty of people liking the stuff um, I do on social media as well, because that's obviously the most visible place where you can see instant reactions all the time. So I get plenty of support. Uh, I'm under no illusions uh, that my opinion would be a minority opinion. Uh, But when you're expressing a minority opinion across a range of issues, you can pick up support that you don't expect. So um, something like the Richard Dawkins, uh, you know, the disinvitation he got to Trinity to address the Historical Debating Society. um, I got plenty of support there because well, here's this Catholic commentator, David Gwynn, and he's supporting the right of arch-atheist Richard Dawkins who hates religion to speak at Trinity. And so I've noticed a little bit of a switch in the last couple of years, uh, particularly since the two big referendums uh, you know, were put behind us, you know, the marriage one six years ago and the abortion one three years ago. Um, I noticed there's a little bit of a shift going on because I think there's a fair number of people getting sick of political correctness and getting sick of how authoritarian that's becoming. And I just noticed that I'm beginning to pick up support from people who would have voted yes in both of those referendums, but who are kind of broadly middle of the road, really, and just sick and tired of the whole woke stuff and the things you're not supposed to say, or, or right, and, and they're getting sick of cancel culture. And they see people like me are against the whole cancel culture thing and against political correctness and saying things that you're sometimes not supposed to say. So I notice that I'm picking up um, supporters that I wouldn't have had a few years ago. And some of them would be kind of, you know, the liberal liberals who might say to me, well, I don't agree with you on this day, but I don't agree with you on that day, but but good on you for standing up for that whole PC thing or against yeah. that whole PC thing. 
Did you ever fear being cancelled or would you ever fear being cancelled? Uh, you'd have to a little bit, yeah, because, I mean, if mm. I did, if I said one wrong thing, you know, one stupid thing, um, I could easily be cancelled and, like, it would happen overnight. Now, I'm careful. Um, there's almost, I mean, I, 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 like, I actually can't think of an example of um, when I've been about to tweet something. Um, oh, I can't say that. I better not say that. I mean, I say pretty much what I want to say on Twitter because I'm not, I don't think I'm given to saying things that are going to get me cancelled. I don't want to say things anyway uh, that would get me cancelled. You know, things that are genuinely racist, we say. Um, I'm just not going to do that because it's not how I feel. Uh, But the sort of thing that might get you into trouble is if you say, well, uh, I don't agree with open border immigration. I believe in some kind of limits that some people will still call that racist. Or if you don't believe in gender quotas, suddenly you're sexist anyway, Uh, which to me is bonkers because it's clearly not sexist to be against gender quotas. And you're clearly not racist if you don't want open borders because in fact, hardly anybody wants open borders, but you still are vulnerable to being called these things by not taking up the uh, required policy positions. Correct. The required policy positions. And this leads me to, you see, if you were cancelled, David, you mightn't even know it. It, it, uh, what I mean by that is there may not be a public head chopping. It may just be that you're uninvited to write your column again for somebody or that your contract isn't renewed for somebody and therefore you would be cancelled. You see, if you, like what happened to Richard Dawkins, so he gets disinvited. Um, but the more insidious thing is all the people they wouldn't even think to invite. Uh, so they don't have to cancel them. It's kind of like in Minority Report, the precogs. I don't know if I don't know if you remember them. So the precogs in the science fiction flick Minority. Yeah, the Report. precognitives. Yeah, they see it. Yeah, yeah, they see it before it happens. Yeah, and so they see. Um, well, we won't invite Richard Dawkins anyway, because Richard Dawkins might say something we don't like. We won't invite David Quinn or, or Ian O'Doherty or Arissa Nolan to address our student body, because they might say something we don't like. And so previously you might have been invited, now you're not. So you've been kind mm. of precog cancelled, if you like. And so there's never any public dispute about it because you were never formally cancelled because you were never invited. And I'm it's sure the, it's, 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 it's similar to it's similar to self-censorship. It's the same it's the same as self-censorship. It's that I won't even go there because I know by going there I'll get in I'll, we'll all get into trouble. Yeah, or you you know you have to kind of liberal authoritarian type in charge of a program or in charge of a university debate and society. So it's not as if uh, they kind of try to avoid being in trouble. They really don't want to give a platform to this really, really horrible person because we can't have those horrible views getting a public airing. So that's the way they think as well. Um, so there's plenty of programs, I am sure, who just never have me on because they would just think we can't give a guy like that a public hearing. So mm. he's never just- going to be on my program. I understand. Yeah, I, I see your point. Um, David, I'm going to ask you a question you'd never be asked by Miriam O'Callaghan on primetime, even if you were on primetime in the last two years. Um, and that is when you're not dealing with these weighty issues and when you're not getting um, piled on and mobbed and hate, hate, hated on Twitter by the Grim Reaper who's going to meet you really soon. Um, <laughs> when you want to relax and have a laugh and you just comfort a comfort laugh, a go-to laugh, a comfort blanket laugh, who do you go to? Uh, well, I mean, there's certain movies I like to watch um so and if you're talking about comedy um i love sideways yeah the film um, sideways yeah paul giamatti yeah. yeah yeah so this is the two guys who go off on a wine trip and yep. get into all kinds of binds and fixes and all this sort of stuff i think that's a fantastic movie um uh a very predictable one i love groundhog day 
All right. I mean, who doesn't love Groundhog Day? Uh, so that's kind of, I watch that every year or two. And same with Sideways. Um, if I'm flicking through channels and I come across a comedy channel, uh, I I love Mickey Flanagan. I can't quite explain why I love Mickey Flanagan. Um, but it's kind of, he just walks on stage and he has this kind of comic appearance uh, that immediately <laughs> cheers you up. Um, the hair and all this kind of thing. And it's a bit like Tommy Cooper. Tommy Cooper didn't have to do anything and you were laughing because he had this stupid fez on the head and he had a kind of a comical appearance. And so he was already halfway home with the audience simply by the way he appeared. And Mickey Flanagan is a bit like that. And also I noticed with Mickey Flanagan, um, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't inject too much politics into his humor. So you don't get this kind of woke mugging suddenly taking place because the, the humor is right on. Is completely irreverent, and he's a yeah. kind of equal opportunity hitting machine, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, he kind of doesn't he doesn't care who he slags. But I mean, apart from all that, I just find him funny. All right. Yeah. So uh, I like watching him, and I notice that you know with the audience, um, he has a great mix of both sexes. Um, so both sexes seem to love him equally, whereas other comedians tend to have more of one sex or the other sex. So he right. seems to appeal equally to both sexes too. We're very happy now. We don't argue over the big stuff anymore. We've done all that. We argue over bollocky things now. <laughs> Unnecessary things. She gets herself a bag of kettle chips on a Sunday. And it's a sight to behold. Because she straps this bag to her face. Whoosh! <laughs> the noise coming out of this bag. She's chomping on these crisps. Clagging Chardonnay. She's got down and that beyond. She's crying her eyes out. And suddenly there's about eight crisps left. She says, Gone I them, save me from myself. She says, Save me from myself. I don't have to go and hide these eight crisps. And I hide them. And I sit back down the tea. Half hour later, she goes, Oh, go and get those last few. I might as well have them. And I say, You sure? Because you said to save you from yourself. She says, so what you're saying then? You're saying I'm getting fucked. <laughs> You've seen the state of yourself lately. <laughs> you're that fucker, do you imagine? Imagine how I feel to have you climbing on top of me. Do you imagine how that feels? <laughs> right, all right, I'll get the crisps. And there he is, Mickey Flanagan. Cheeky chappy, innie, Mickey Flanagan. Just so good. I'm here with David Quinn on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. It's proudly supported by Curry's PC World. And David, I also noticed on your answers to the uh, the list of questions we sent you that you're also a fan of um, Mad Men. Yeah, Mad Men is great and it's very rewatchable. It was just that to okay. give people some ammunition, to give people some ammunition to, 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 to pile on you even more. Mm. Mad Men was a time when men were men and women were women, David. And uh, women knew their place and the men poured scotches at 11 o'clock in the morning and sort of congratulated uh, yeah, each other. See, <laughs> yeah, but it, it had a very liberal politics because we were supposed <laughs> to think badly of those men, Right. Uh, so we were supposed to look back uh, kind of aghast at the kind of attitudes which existed then from the smoking to the drinking, from the way, from the fact that the women were all secretaries and the men were all the bosses and all this other stuff. So we were supposed to look kind of like back at this world, a bit aghast and patting ourselves in the back because we're so much better now. So the politics of the program were clearly liberal. And a lot of it was seen through the eyes of Peggy, who was Don's secretary to begin with and then works her That's way right. right up the ranks. Um, and also Joan, because Joan also works her way right up the ranks as well and becomes a partner. So, so it's kind of you're following the kind of, you know, feminist kind of upward ascent 
um, of women in the workplace in that Jesus, series. You've, you've you've done a conservative treatise on this 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 program. Fair play <laughs> to you, um, David. Has your mind ever uh, been has your mind ever been changed about any of your core beliefs? Um, well, I mean, I'd make I'd make adjustments. Um, so, I mean, if you take, you see. People assume that if I was put in charge of the country, that they'd end up in this really, really ultra-conservative place that'd be right back to the 1950s, right? And that is simply not the case. So if I had absolute power, um, what laws would I bring in? Would I suddenly revoke the laws against in favour of contraception? No, I absolutely 100% would not. Um, would I revoke the law on divorce? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Um, uh, so it, there's actually few enough laws prohibiting anything that I would pass. I mean, abortion is a somewhat different issue for me because it's a life or death issue. Um, but even if I had absolute power over that, um, I think what you've got to do with law, you can't have law um, too many steps ahead of public consent. All right, because you're just going to cause a rebellion against that law. So even if somebody gave me the power to change the abortion law tomorrow, I think it would have to be done incrementally and you have to bring the public with you bit by bit. Um, and, but I certainly wouldn't go near the laws about contraception, certainly wouldn't go near the law about divorce. Um, uh, because actually, you know, despite being a conservative, I have a pretty libertarian streak as well, where I think there should be a minimum number of laws that restrict things, to be honest. Um, uh, so I'm not kind of that sort of authoritarian conservative, I think, and I hope. Um, but over the years, I mean, you just kind of get pragmatic about, I mean, like, you know, you meet friends and members of your extended family and, you know, and they, their marriages break down and, you know, you obviously sympathize with them. And you're not going to come down as a kind of great big judgmental authoritarian conservative on them, are you? Because you've got to live in the real world and you've got to make the adjustments that, uh, you know, living in the real world require. But you see, what you see nowadays is the opposite going on, that people in ordinary conversations are policing their conversation all the time, but in a different way to how they might have done it 50 years ago, right? All the things people are worried about that they can't say. So I think we're kind of, again, the authoritarianism is kind of body shifted. If you mm. like. And it's kind of like authoritarianism will always be with us. We thought we could get rid of it and we got rid of the Catholic Church. And in fact, it just jumped from one body into the other. Yeah, it just changes the and color. I think most of the inflexibility now lies on that side. Yeah, you're saying it just changes the color of its coat. Um, mm. uh, David, if you weren't David Quinn and you could be somebody else for a day, who would you be and why and what would you do? Now, that was the toughest of the questions uh, that I was sent. Just Don't say Fenton too. No, <laughs> I was so I decided in the end because it's an area I know almost nothing about. It's just not how my brain works. I, I can okay, I can read history and get history, and I can read a bit of politics and get that, and I can read a bit about religion and get that. So that's how my brain works. But physics, no. So and that's such a huge area because kind of maths is the language of the universe, and that's how you understand the universe is mathematically. So I think I'd like to be Albert Einstein for one day. Wow! And suddenly, a whole new vista opens up. Now, for those great, but for those for those people who are listening to my podcast, uh, David also suggested somebody else, Xi Jinping. So (laughs) you did suggest (laughs) you'd love to be Xi Jinping for a day (laughs) because your leader 
of, well, you're the most powerful leader in the world because the most powerful man in the world is not the US president, it's the president of China, who is also general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party because he has much more power over this country. And look, he's been taking China in a terrible direction. Okay, getting more and more authoritarian, the dreadful things in Hong Kong, the dreadful things happening to the Uyghur Muslims, that's probably the west of the country, probably the worst human rights abuse in peacetime of the 21st century so far. So it becomes Xi Jinping and you roll all that back. Imagine being able to do that for 1.4 billion people. Is that yeah, a and I, thing to do with your day? Correct. And I followed actually some of your articles on the Uyghurs and um, how they've been treated in that province. Uh, the, the Muslims, isn't that correct? Um, the, correct? The Muslim yeah. Uyghurs. And uh, you've done very well to highlight that in, in your yeah. columns. Finally, David Quinn, um, we offer all our guests on this podcast the chance to be either A, celebrated in song by Christy Moore, interrogated by Miriam O'Callaghan or eviscerated by Roy Keane. Which one have you chosen, David? Well, I, I kind of did it by a process of elimination. So uh, not Christy Moore, because I don't think Christy Moore would want to celebrate me in song, to be honest. And I'd also be embarrassed if I was Jack Charlton. Yeah, go ahead and write the song. Uh, Miriam McGallaghan, I've been interrogated by her enough. And so I think it would be brilliant to be condemned as absolutely useless by Roy Keane. So I go okay. Well, we'll go for Roy Keane in a minute. Although now you yeah. bring to mind the idea that Christy Moore could have done, oh, don't forget your shovel before you get divorced. Oh, don't forget your <laughs> shovel before you get divorced. He could have done something like that. Miriam, you've had enough of her. But uh, Roy Keane, you want to be eviscerated by Roy Keane? Yeah, I think that would live on in the legends, wouldn't it? To be just okay, I'll bring Roy into the room. Roy, 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 Roy <laughs> David, David wants to. David wants to be eviscerated. Okay. How's it going? How's it going? David Quinn, is it? It is. That's me. I'd say you've never heard of me. No, I have heard of you. Oh, damn. I read all your articles. I see the name, Quinn. First of all, terrible name. I've never liked anybody <laughs> called Quinn in my life. Mother Teresa, you're probably one of them Catholic mad people. Absolute <laughs> lunatic. I hear you play on the right wing. Yeah, I, I hear you're a right winger. You're an absolute disgrace to the right wing. I've seen great right wingers in my time. Genghis Khan, the boy over there, Paul Pot. Pol Pot from Cambodia, Mussolini, the Italian lad, Franco. No, a, no, 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 these lads were proper right wingers. You're soft. You're gone soft. I see you on the fucking television. You're an absolute disgrace. I see you there taking questions off Miriam O'Callaghan or listening to Fintan O'Toole. And you're soft on him. You should be putting your studs through him. I hear you on Matt Cooper. You should be storming out of the studio instead of all this crap. Just standing around waiting for people to argue back. Don't let people argue back to you. Put your fucking head through them, David. Do you understand what a conservative is at the end of the day? You're meant to go harder. You're too soft, David. You've gone over to the left wing practically. You're so fucking soft. Just stand up in the studio and go, God is great. Shut the fuck up or I'll put my fucking head through you. That was brilliant. I'm in my place now, completely and utterly. Not enough red cards. I should be cancelled. I'm not doing my job if I'm not cancelled. And you're not, and yeah, and Roy Keane insists that you should be a little bit more right wing. You're a bit too soft, David. I think he's trying to yeah, tell you yeah, a bit harder, yeah. a bit harder. You know, um, uh, go hard on Colin O'Gorman the next time you see him. And I really enjoyed this conversation once again, um, uh, David Quinn. And I really hope uh, neither you or I get cancelled for this. I got cancelled the last time I talked to you, uh, so you never know what's going to happen. David, thanks very much for chatting. Thank you. Thanks, Roy. <laughs> And that's it for this week's Mario Rosenstock podcast. I really, really enjoyed my um, chat with David. Genuinely, I really did. 
Um, so subscribe or follow for free rate and review us it all really helps uh, contact me directly at mariorosenstock at gmail.com thanks of course to Curry's PC World for your proud support listen back to all the great guests and exclusive comedy we've had so far um, get in touch enjoy yourselves have a great week see you same time same place next week bye bye